Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers and hope you're enjoying your weekend. Our guest today is Congressman Andy Barr, who represents Central Kentucky in Washington. He was reelected in November. He's a Republican. 2021 has already been eventful in our nation's capital, starting with the attack on the seat of government on January 6th. Legislation has also been passed to deal with the economic fallout of the pandemic, at least in the House, and that includes $1,400 stimulus checks for Americans, but that was passed without a single Republican vote. We'll talk with Congressman Barr about what he thinks a relief bill should have looked like. A minimum wage hike proposal apparently is still in the works. Barr also recently introduced the CAROL Act. That is short for Cardiovascular Advances in Research and Opportunities Legacy. It is named after Barr's late wife, who died of a heart ailment at the age of 39 last year. And we're coming off a very rough stretch of weather here in Kentucky, from ice storms to flooding, and there is a request going to Washington for two federal disaster declarations. Congressman Barr is joining us now. Welcome, Congressman. Thank you very much for coming. Good to be with you. Let's start uh, with uh, with that. Uh, because of the, the flooding and these two uh, uh, terrible ice storms that rolled through and another winter storm, uh, there's all kinds of uh, damage in Kentucky. Are you supportive of what apparently will be two requests for federal disaster aid uh, from Washington that requires the signature of the president? Absolutely. And first of all, our, our thoughts and prayers go to all of our constituents who have been impacted by these historic floods. Uh, many counties in the 6th Congressional District, in particular uh, Estill County and Powell County in the eastern part of the 6th District, have been uh, significantly impacted. We've been in regular communication, uh, both me personally and my staff, with the local officials there and property owners. Uh, we are encouraging all of uh, those individuals to document the damage, uh, the flooding that's gone on there. I'm going to be heading down to Estill County and Powell County later this afternoon with some bottled water and some supplies, cleaning supplies uh, to help pitch in. But the main focus right now is to, to document the damage, uh, document the flooding, uh, get that to the local emergency management officials, uh, and then support that with uh, uh, an application coming from uh, Frankfurt to uh, President Biden to uh, seek an emergency declaration so that FEMA can come in and provide emergency assistance. The federal delegation is in full support of that request, and uh, we will be joining a letter with my other colleagues in the U.S. House uh, in support of the governor's request of President Biden to declare this emergency so that we can get emergency assistance to our constituents but as your, soon as possible. Your message is that it's important that Kentuckians show proof and that if uh, there is damage to, uh, to property uh, for businesses or uh, individuals that they need to get that documented and get it to their local uh, emergency folks quickly. That's right and there is a portal in, in these counties, a local emergency management, county emergency management portals where individuals can submit that documentation. That supports uh, the county level uh, declaration of an emergency and that will be funneled up to Frankfurt for a comprehensive request to the federal government for assistance. Uh, we will be uh, encouraging folks to do that on our social media and website, uh, but for anyone from those counties who has suffered damage, whether it's a business or a home, uh, we encourage you to document that and send that uh, your, uh, into your local emergency management portal so that we can get you the assistance that you deserve. And do you assume that can be uh, turned around quickly, that the president is likely to sign it fast and that uh, uh, that aid can start coming to Kentucky uh, fairly fast? 
I do anticipate that we will get it uh, because the damage is so extensive uh, and that we will get it quickly. However, um, the quicker we can get the, the evidence and documentation into the county emergency management folks and to Frankfurt, the quicker the governor can get uh, the request into the federal government. All right. And then we will be supporting that, of course, at the federal level. All right, so uh, a, a lot of folks with some uh, quick work to do in, in uh, uh, response to this, which has really been a tough time. Uh, Congressman, uh, uh, you have two young daughters. Uh, it's been a, a tough year for your family, I know, uh, several months uh, now after uh, they lost their mother and, and, and your wife's uh, very unexpected death. Uh, you are proposing something you're calling the CAROL Act. Uh, right now that is uh, in her memory, but it is designed to do some, some concrete things. Uh, what would that be? Well, Carol leaves an amazing legacy as a, as a wonderful wife, mother, and friend, uh, but we want to carry forward uh, her amazing legacy. Her life was cut too short, but it was a life of incredible impact and consequence, and uh, we know that that legacy is going to continue uh, going forward. And, and the Carol Act, uh, the Cardiovascular Advances in Research and Opportunity Legacies Act, uh, which I introduced, is going to carry forward that, that legacy and make a difference and, and hopefully save lives of other families touched by heart disease. Uh, we knew that Carol uh, was diagnosed with an uh, underlying heart condition, a heart valve disease, since she was in seventh grade. But uh, we, like many other families, had no idea that this was a life-threatening situation. And that's the problem. That's why we need more medical research. The Carol Act would provide a specific line of effort, uh, a grant program within the National Heart, Lung, Blood Institute. We've collaborated with the NHLBI and Dr. Gary Gibbons uh, there, the federal agency that, uh, that provides uh, funding for research for heart disease. And we know we need specific uh, precision medicine and investigation into what, uh, how to detect a life-threatening situation and differentiate that from uh, mitral valve prolapse or other heart valve disease diseases that are typically benign. And in Carol's case, uh, her underlying condition, mitral valve prolapse, it only results in sudden cardiac death in 0.2% of the cases. It mostly impacts young women. We don't know why. And so that's why we need more research. And this legislation would authorize $100 million over five years to help investigators, help cardiologists, help uh, physicians identify those risk factors that would put an individual like my wife in a life-threatening situation. And uh, we're very happy that in just one week's time, we have over 75 bipartisan co-sponsors. My, uh, my colleague, uh, Congresswoman Kathleen Rice, a Democrat from New York, has uh, generously agreed to help lead this charge with me. And again, this is, this is our way of honoring uh, the extraordinary legacy of my wife, but we want to do some real good in helping other families avoid a similar tragedy. I know Carol uh, had a great career in her own uh, right. She was uh, in medical sales. If she had had the kind of information that you think uh, uh, can uh, come out of uh, an act like this uh, in Congress, uh, would she have been better uh, prepared to, uh, to, to deal with the situation that she faced? There's no question, and that's the goal of the legislation, is to give patients like Carol better information, uh, better tools for intervention, surgical procedures, perhaps, or a treatment plan that can allow them to leave long, healthy lives. And in fact, many Americans who do have this condition uh, with interventions, with a treatment program, can in fact survive uh, heart valve disease. And that's the message that we want to uh, impart on our constituents and other Americans around the country. Uh, go get checked 
early prevention is important and uh, making sure that we can take this uh, condition very, very seriously. It's typically not life-threatening, but we want everyone to take it very, very seriously so that you can get the treatment that you need. Many want to know, but don't want to really, uh, you know, pry into your, your, your private family matters, but are, you, are your girls doing okay now? Well, thanks so much for the question because they are. They're amazing re amazingly resilient, and I uh, got home from D.C. last night, got a chance to take them to school. Eleanor is uh, ready for her uh, social studies debate in, in class today, and Mary Clay is, I think, ready for her spelling test. And, and so um, they miss their mommy terribly, as do I, of course, but uh, they are doing uh, what uh, their mother would want them to do. Uh, they are uh, her greatest legacy, and uh, they're tough like their mama, and uh, uh, we, are, we are charging forward, um, and, and we miss her, but we know we can honor her legacy by just getting it done. That's what she always said to us, just get it done. And uh, that's exactly what we're doing. Congressman, it can be said that there are a lot of avenues, uh, you know, where we could be doing more research. Uh, President Biden has said he wanted to make, uh, wants to make a major push on cancer research. And uh, uh, some in science say that, you know, look at the rapid development we had of these COVID vaccines, that if we applied ourselves, uh, we could do more. Do you support efforts to uh, incentivize companies to do more uh, research? Absolutely, and I think uh, Operation Warp Speed over the last 12 months is a great example of that when there is a robust public-private partnership that amazing things can happen. Think about this. In just 12 months' time, we've deployed three effective and safe vaccines that are literally uh, ending this pandemic in probably six months' time. Uh, we know we have more work to do, but uh, it is a testament to investment in medical research and medical innovation. Uh, it is not just the public sector, it's, a, uh, it's part of the private sector as well, but a partnership there. And so I have always uh, supported investments in the National Institutes of Health. And now with my own life of being personally touched uh, by uh, this, I have, I have recommitted and redoubled my efforts to support uh, medical research and innovation at places like the University of Kentucky. We have the Marquis Cancer Center, we have the Sanders Brown Center on Aging, and of course now uh, with heart disease impacting my life, uh, I am so committed to the mission of the National Heart Lung Blood Institute. Let's talk about uh, where we are uh, as, a, as a country right now. You know, the events of uh, January 6th uh, shocked uh, the nation and uh, have resulted in uh, arrests and uh, pending prosecutions. Uh, you were uh, uh, at the Capitol that day. Uh, how has it come to this in this country? Well, of course, uh, what a tragic event uh, on January 6th. And of course, the violence that we saw in the cities around the country uh, last summer uh, related to the Black Lives Matter movement uh, also uh, very, very tragic. And what we need to remember in this country is that we resolve our differences at the ballot box. We resolve our differences uh, in courtrooms. We resolve our differences peacefully through debate and the First Amendment. And uh, censorship is not the answer. Um, uh, we need uh, to restore confidence in our elections. That's the way through all of this, and violence is never the answer. And we have obviously need to hold all of those individuals who resort to violence to full account. Uh, but it is tragic that our country has become so polarized and divided, and uh, I have many friends on the other side of the aisle, and we're talking to one another about how it is that we can bring the country back together. And I'm excited because as the co-chair of the bipartisan working group in Congress, uh, my 
friend and colleague from Washington State Democrat Derek Kilmer and I are reconvening our working group next Tuesday morning. We do this uh, every week. Uh, we get together for breakfast as a bipartisan group and we talk about uh, opportunities for overlapping interest and in bringing the country together. I think that dialogue is a good thing. That's what we need to do. Uh, but I will tell you, it doesn't help uh, when we have partisan legislation in Washington. It doesn't help uh, when we have legislation that will actually undermine confidence in our elections. And frankly, it doesn't help to have a wall, a giant wall surrounding the U.S. Capitol building when there's no, there's no real threat anymore and the intelligence doesn't support any major threat. I don't like the idea of a, uh, of a wall surrounding the People's House in Washington, D.C. when there is no uh, imminent threat uh, to the building. That, that threat seems to have passed. I don't like the idea of politicians hypocritically supporting a wall to protect themselves, but not supporting a wall to protect the American people at the southern border. Uh, it's my understanding that the, the Capitol Police have requested that uh, uh, National Guard troops remain there for a couple of more months. So you, you are not supportive of that? Well, look, I, I certainly defer to the Capitol Hill Police and, and what they need. We needed, frankly, better security posture on January 6th, and it was an intelligence failure, and we need to listen. Uh, to our uh, Capitol Hill Police and security to make sure that we do secure the, the people and, the, and the, uh, the, bu the building there, of course. Um, but the long-term solution is not a wall around the Capitol building. We need to revisit some of the security measures that we have there. Um, but uh, eventually, we want to return to an open Capitol that the American people can visit and do so in a safe way. All right, Congressman Andy Barr is with us. A lot more questions to come. We'll talk about the COVID relief package passed solely by Democrats. No Republican support for that. Uh, we'll be back on WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers in a moment. Welcome back to WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. We're certainly glad you're with us today. And Congressman Andy Barr, Republican, who represents Central Kentucky, uh, is our guest today and we will continue our discussion. Uh, so, Congressman, the uh, COVID relief package uh, was uh, passed uh, solely by Democrats, no Republican support. It included those $1,400 stimulus checks. It's also nearly $2 trillion uh, when you look at the bill in total. You voted against it. Uh, were there parts of it uh, that you could have supported? There is a lot of money in there coming to states like Kentucky for uh, state and local governments, for instance. Well, I certainly would have supported some of the targeted measures related to vaccine distribution. That's really what we need to focus on. But what's so disappointing about this uh, partisan, hyper-partisan bill that will add well over $2 trillion, with interest, well over $2 trillion to the national debt is that the vast majority of the bill was completely unrelated to COVID. Uh, it's, it's said that only 9% of this legislation went to vaccine distribution and to, to, to the healthcare response uh, to the pandemic. You know, I was proud to support five separate bipartisan bills uh, from the CARES Act forward to that $900 billion relief package that we passed just before the end of the year. That totaled $4 trillion. And what's so disappointing, a bill about this partisan effort uh, now is that over $1 trillion, think about that, $1 trillion of the previous bipartisan efforts remains unspent. So I think we need to focus on actually deploying the resources that we've already appropriated. And if we do need more of funding for vaccine distribution, we need to have a targeted response to help 
do that. But remember, thanks to the previous administration and Operation Warp Speed, we have today, before any bill has been passed uh, under the Biden administration, we have one and a half million shots of vaccines going into arms every single day in this country. And thanks to the bipartisan efforts of the last Congress, we have now deployed over $600 billion in emergency forgivable loans to small businesses. So much has already been done and we're predicted to be back at full economic strength uh, by the middle of 2021. So this looks a bit like uh, profligate spending. And again, most of the bill is not related to COVID at all. But one of the things that I'm really concerned about is, is over $350 billion of this legislation goes to bail out mismanaged blue states and cities for pre-COVID liabilities. Well, there comes the question. Could, could you have supported uh, the aid to, to state and, and local governments uh, who, uh, in some cases, uh, you know, have incurred tremendous expense during this pandemic, but you're making the point that in some cases, uh, states and local governments already had liabilities. Oh, they had liabilities well preceding COVID-19, and it's not fair to states that actually managed their budgets well before COVID-19 to now bail them out. But here's the point, Bill. You know, in a bipartisan way, through the CARES Act and the four other bipartisan bills, we deployed trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars to state and local governments, not just in the form of direct aid, but also in the form of money from the housing and urban development, from the Department of Health and Human Services, a direct funding for uh, hospitals. Uh, and so, look, I'm open to more assistance to state and local governments if it's related to the pandemic. But if it's related to just bailing them out for, you know, pension liabilities that they mismanaged before the pandemic, I'm not really interested in that. And we also created a municipal liquidity facility that was underutilized because, frankly, many cities and states um, were actually doing quite well with their revenues. So, the bottom line is I support, and we're not out of the woods yet. We, we continue to, to respond to this pandemic, but there is a trillion dollars of unspent money. And if any of my cities or counties or hospitals need assistance, we have a lot of money that has not yet been spent. We will help them apply for that money and help get them uh, anything that they need. But this is piling on a huge burden on future taxpayers, $2 trillion and with interest, another $1.3 trillion over 10 years. This will weaken our country over the long run. President Biden clearly is making a push on uh, climate change. He has uh, rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, the administration is calling for more use of renewable energy going forward. Uh, do you have uh, fears about uh, how that could impact Kentucky, which uh, has been such a provider of coal over the years? Well, we saw what happened in Texas, where uh, a lack of uh, grid reliability uh, resulted in uh, a terrible situation for the citizens down there. And, and I think it's a, a warning that uh, while renewable energy certainly should be part of our energy mix and our portfolio, and, and while no one is, is suggesting that climate is not a legitimate issue to talk about, we need to, be, we need to have common sense about this. And if we completely abandon fossil energy, we're going to see blackouts and brownouts like we saw in Texas. And, and so I do worry that the extreme climate activists have hijacked this administration. And uh, on the Financial Services Committee, I'm particularly interested in the way in which this administration is going to use financial regulation to choke off financing for legitimate law-abiding businesses. 
you know, I don't think that the radical Green New Deal proposal can pass even a majority of the House and the Senate, majority Democrat House and Senate, because it's so extreme, it's so radical. Um, you know, and so what we're looking at is an administration that set up a climate czar in the Department of Treasury, uh, emphasis on climate disclosures and securities uh, filings. And so what we think they're going to do and what they're, uh, what they're basically um, predicting ahead or telegraphing for us is that they're going to use the backdoor of financial regulation to pressure banks and other financial firms to deprive energy companies, uh, manufacturing companies, yes, coal and fossil energy companies of access to capital. And I think politicizing access to capital is very dangerous. It's an extension of cancel culture, whether in big tech uh, or in the, the academy and universities or in the mainstream media. We're seeing that extended into banking and in finance in a way that I think is very dangerous, discriminating against law-abiding American companies um, in order to bankrupt them. Right, it's, not about it's not about predicting financial stress, which is what the Biden administration is saying. It's about creating financial stress for the American people. Okay, a couple more issues I want to get to here. Uh, you know, we watch a lot of hotspots around the world right now, the Middle East, obviously, uh, the rivalries with uh, China and Russia, uh, the concerns, as you mentioned earlier, along the, uh, the U.S. southern border. What are you keeping your eyes on right now? Well, as a new member of the House uh, Foreign Affairs Committee uh, and as a member of the House China Task Force, I think the rise of China is the greatest threat. The pandemic was a huge wake-up call for the United States. This was a plague that was unleashed on the world by the Chinese Communist Party. We've seen what they've done in terms of ripping up an international treaty with Hong Kong, uh, pushing an expansionist, aggressive expansionist uh, posture in um, in the lesser developed part of the world. There are human rights viol violations and and genocide against uh, religious minorities like the Uyghurs, uh, and the growth of their, and a hostile, aggressive growth in their military, their theft of intellectual property. We have learned from the pandemic that we need to strengthen the resiliency of our supply chain. China, the Chinese Communist Party weaponized the supply chain against us to make the pandemic even worse. We need to onshore a lot of our manufacturing. So I think that's number one, and I'll tell you, it's just so alarming that Washington, D.C. is so partisan now, I offered a simple amendment to the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill because there's billions of dollars in there for foreign aid. I simply said, I don't want any of that funding to go to the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, on a unanimous party line vote, the de all Democrats voted against uh, prohibiting any of the foreign aid from going to an entity or individual supported by the Chinese Communist Party. Right. That is alarming to me because we need to be united as a country uh, to confront the real threat from a rising China, a China that's threatening, uh, threatening us militarily from an economic standpoint, certainly from technology and the theft of intellectual property from a trade standpoint. So we need to get serious about this issue, and I'm going to focus my time and energy on the Asia-Pacific subcommittee right. uh, uh, countering the, the, the rising China threat. Congressman, I don't think you'll get any argument from anybody anywhere that Washington is too partisan, certainly uh, right now, on all sides. All right, Kentucky Secretary of State Michael Adams says uh, the next year's elections will be run in new districts. Uh, he says the lines can and will be drawn before the filing deadline. The sixth has grown, uh, could have to shed some voters. Uh, will it be tough for you if those lines uh, shift around some and we have just a few seconds on that. I'm less worried about that bill and, and more um, interested in making sure that we don't lose a congressional district. It's important for Kentucky to preserve the six that we have. We're told that based on the
preliminary numbers that we will be keeping all six uh, members of, of the House. That's a good thing. Obviously, the legislature will decide those lines, and uh, we have a privilege of representing these 19 counties. We, we love serving the people of these 19 counties. If we have to lose because of the census data, um, that's regrettable, but we obviously have to uh, honor the one-person, one-vote principle, and uh, there is a constitutional requirement yeah. about that. Um, so we'll be, we'll be certainly engaged with the General Assembly and with our colleagues to make sure that we continue to get the opportunity to represent as much of Central and Eastern Kentucky as possible. Congressman Andy Barr, as always, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. And we'll be back on Kentucky Newsmakers. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. A year ago this weekend, the first case of COVID-19 showed up in Kentucky. After a huge effort to quickly develop effective vaccines, producers are now ahead of schedule. Pharmaceutical giants, even some fierce rivals, are joining forces to help Americans. Our chief national political analyst, Greta Van Susteren, explains. Hello, I'm Greta Van Susteren, and here is your full court fast break. The race to vaccinate is speeding up. The nation's first single-dose COVID shot made by Johnson & Johnson is going into American arms. Tuesday, President Biden announcing that by the end of May, there will be enough vaccines for every adult in America. The administration advanced the timeline by roughly two months, pushing Johnson & Johnson into around-the-clock production, offering logistical help from the Department of Defense. The goal? to produce 94 million Johnson & Johnson single-dose shots by the end of May. That's on top of Pfizer and Moderna's doses. Together, those two manufacturers are pledging to provide by the end of May enough shots for 200 million Americans. But it's important to remember that while the doses may be ready by the end of May, it could take longer to distribute and administer. President Biden also announcing more important progress for the second half of the year. The world's second largest vaccine manufacturer, Merck, is teaming up with rival Johnson & Johnson to boost vaccine production. Merck is dedicating two of its facilities to Johnson & Johnson's vaccine. It will likely take months for everything to get up and running, but Merck could help create booster shots to tackle the new and more contagious rapidly spreading COVID variants. It could also produce doses for teens and children, assuming Johnson & Johnson's vaccine is deemed safe for younger age groups. Want more Full Court Press? Tune in Sunday. We bring politics home, covering the national stories that impact you. And that's Kentucky Newsmakers. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you bright and early this week on the morning news. Have a good week ahead.